Welcome to Shelving Cart. I'm Sarah. And I'm Teddy. And we're both librarians here to have a podcast book club with each other and all of you. On Shelving Cart, we talk about books like it's a one-hour book club meeting, so we talk about likes, dislikes, reviews, general feelings, and more. And generally completely spoil the book, so be warned. And today we will be discussing Fledgling by Octavia Butler. So just a heads up, um, this book covers topics of racism, violent racist acts, and implied pedophilia, slash, yeah, just a lot of weird stuff about relationships and consent in general. Um, So just be warned, we will be talking about all that stuff quite in depth in this episode. Feel free to skip as necessary. So as a warm up, Teddy, what was the first Octavia Butler book you ever read? That's such a good question. I think... I probably read Blood Child and Other Stories, um, which is a collection of short stories. And the edition that I had the good luck to pick up was an annotated edition where she just left you little notes about each story. And one of Octavia Butler's most famous short stories ever is Blood Child. And it's about an alien that has a parasitic relationship with human beings like it's about aliens in general um which is a beloved topic of hers but the story itself has often been analyzed as a as a metaphor for slavery i think because octavia butler is a black author who writes a lot about racism and human relationships whatever and in the and it's a perfectly good read of the story like it makes a lot of sense and in her annotation of it she wrote Something along the lines of, this is a total paraphrase, but she was like, yeah, everyone thinks this story is about slavery. I'm actually really into bot flies and went down a research rabbit hole about bot flies. And this is a story about bot flies. (laughs) That's incredible. That's incredible. It's really good. So um, yeah, that like opened the door to my Octavia obsession. Um, Do you remember (laughs) what the first Butler book you read was? The first one that I ever read was parable of the sower which i believe bonkers first one (laughs) well i believe what happened is i was visiting you Mm. and we went to the bookstore and i was like i've never read any octavia butler and you were like this one's really good everyone says to go with kindred first but i think you should read this one first it was my fault yeah oh no okay well how did that well i thought i mean i thought it was great so it's not like Okay. A problem. So I've read that in Parable of the Talents and then Kindred, but I guess that's it. Okay. That's and then like now not, Fledgling. Yeah. That's not little. That's like a pretty good foray. I feel like Kindred's the one that everyone knows. Like my mom, my mm-hmm. mom loves time travel books. So she was like, Kindred is amazing. Whereas like my mom would probably never read Octavia Butler otherwise. Right, 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 right. Yeah. 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 And it's wild to me that Kindred is like perhaps her most accessible book uh just yeah. it that it's not an accessible book at all like no it's, you know what i mean like not to scare anyone off like it's a good book um and we'll talk about this that octavia has like an interestingly bing 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 writing style but it's like a master class in bing 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 yeah um so it's not to say that octavia butler in general is like inaccessible but like kindred is also the story of a woman who gets snapped back in time um, to, like, a plantation in the South and, like, yeah. is enslaved. 
Yes, um, yes. Which is like a deeply terrifying premise. Um, uh, my 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 friend Greg and I were talking about it once, and Greg goes, "Yeah, I picked up that book once, and I said, why would I do this pain to myself, and then put it back down? <laughs> why would I do this pain to myself? Yeah, that's so valid. If you're not interested in painting yourself or doing yeah. pain to yourself, like maybe Octavia isn't for you. Yeah, I my story with Octavia also is that I might have been when you came to visit me, I might have wanted to share my pain with Parable of the Sower because I read that book for the first time when I moved and actually it was awful. So I, the problem for me emotionally and the reason why I had such a big emotional reaction to you being like, oh yeah, that was the first one. And I was like, I'm so sorry is because I read that book when I first moved to a new neighborhood. And in case you were like I moved to a new state, new city, in case you haven't read it, a big, I would say a good chunk of Parable of the Sower, the the lesson learned is trust not thy neighbor, you fucking idiot. Um, And so, (laughs) like, I really speed read it and I have such anxiety around change already. And then this book was like, just such a difficult thing to read as I was like trying to settle into a new place. Um, But it was like a beautiful thing in that it elicited, elicited a lot of intense reactions um so yeah if you're looking for the intensity go visit octavia butler for sure <laughs> absolutely absolutely okay well i have some background info on octavia butler if you're Hit interested me. oh my god could i be more interested no uh, okay so i pulled um bios and stuff from various spots so mm-hmm. Starting off with her website, I figure that that probably is the most accurate representation of how she would have wanted to be described. Um, So, Octavia E. Butler was a renowned African-American author who received a MacArthur Genius Grant and a Penn West Lifetime Achievement Award for her body of work. Born in Pasadena in 1947, she was raised by her mother and her grandmother. She was the author of several award-winning novels, including Parable of the Sower, which was New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and Parable of the Talents, winner of the Nebula Award for the Best Science Fiction Novel published that year. She was acclaimed for her lean prose, strong protagonists, and social observations in stories that range from the distant past to the far future. Though the MacArthur Grant made life easier in later years, she struggled for decades when her dystopian novels exploring themes of black injustice, global warming, women's rights, and political disparity were, to say the least, not in commercial demand. During those these years of obscurity, Butler was always an early riser, woke at 2 a.m. every day to write, and then went to work as a telemarketer, potato chip inspector, and dishwasher, among other things. She passed away on February 24th, 2006. At the time of her death, interest in her books was beginning to rise, and in recent years, sales of her books had increased enormously as the issues she addressed in her Afrofuturistic feminist novels and short fiction have only become more relevant. Her work is now taught in over 200 colleges and universities nationwide and have received critical acclaim. Um, And then about fledgling... Um, in an interview in on Democracy Now! in 2005, November of 2005, she said she started writing Fledgling as a way to break up the heaviness of Parable of the Sower. Mm. And 
parable of the talents, which is funny because this book is also f- heavy. Yeah. <laughs> um, which are extremely heavy, as we discuss climate fiction books and more. Um, and in the same interview, Butler said she wrote her first sci-fi story at age 10 after seeing what she described as a bad movie called Devil Girls from Mar- Devil Girl from Mars. But she stuck with sci-fi because she saw it as a as wide open and it gave her the opportunity to comment on every aspect of humanity. And then from the back of my copy of Fledgling, she just self-described as, I am a 53-year-old writer who can remember being a 10-year-old writer and who expects someday to be an 80-year-old writer. Sobbing. I know. I'm also comfortably asocial, a hermit in the middle of Seattle, a pessimist if I'm not careful, a feminist, a black, a former Baptist, an oil and water combination of ambition, laziness, insecurity, certainty, and drive. Fledgling was her last published book, as she passed away in February 2006 at age 59. In her papers that were recovered after her death, she had drafts of the beginning of sequels. And I think I speak for me and Teddy when I say we are worse off in this world without having her in it writing stories anymore. Octavia Butler, I think like it is now chic to be like, oh yeah, Octavia Butler, masterclass in science fiction. Like, and you went over that a little bit where like now it is like, She's coming into her fame shortly before her death and then, like, a lot after it. Um, But she has always been a guiding light in the genre. And, uh, yeah, I'm getting emotional talking about it. She is just, like, the best of the best. I just love her so much. Um, Yeah. And an honor to talk about her on this podcast. Yeah, and I think that her life is another way that we can see how, like, American society fails a black woman. Because she struggled with her health and her finances for most, like, for her life. And it's like, well, if, uh, prob- most likely, if this world was kinder to black women, like, she would still be here. Like, she was born in 1947. She would, she she would be, what, in her 80s right now. So. There's an Adrian Marie Brown interview with Ursula K. Le Guin. Mm. Um, who we are reading in two weeks for this podcast, also considered um, one of the most amazing science fiction writers ever and fantasy writers ever. Um, And I was always under the impression that um, Octavia and Ursula were friends, Um, but they weren't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so this Adrienne Marie Brown interview, she goes, did you ever spend time with Octavia and Ursula K. Le Guin said, we met only two or three times. She was an extraordinary person, both formidable and lovable. I always felt that she was larger than life. If you know what I mean. And that's it. Mm. That's like their whole little relationship. I super thought that they were like buddies and they just weren't, but their, their works I think are in pretty good conversation with each other. Yes. Which is why they get like tossed together so much. Yes. Yeah. Yes. They write about similar things. I also think that they um bing things in the same way. Yes. Well, okay, this is interesting because now we're getting into kind of the nitty gritty of like who can we okay, Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> for those of us who haven't been listening to the episodes one after another and have just tuned in for Octavia Butler, which I understand, yeah. can you explain what binging is? 
Yes. Okay. So Teddy and I, when we did our first episode on the Hunger Games, discussed how um, Suzanne Collins would write things in a way that we would describe as bing, 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 which is basically say having like your narrator or your main character, whoever, like basically tell you what the book is about and say like almost like a fourth wall break, turn to the camera and be like, just so you know, in this scene, I'm highlighting the violence of government upon its people, you know, like things like that like just by the way right this is i'm talking like about mutualism like you know like by the way collective action is good you know pick up this vocabulary word and google it right Um, yeah (laughs) yeah so right and so this is interesting to me because um in an earlier episode i think i said that ursula k le guin has never binged anything in her life oh yeah Oh yeah, you're right. Um, and you did say that, <laughs> which is very interesting because I, I actually do think that's true. I think Ursula shies from the bing. She doesn't yeah. want to bing you. Um, a good example of this is probably the dispossessed, which is. Um, have you read the dispossessed? Sarah? No, okay. I haven't. That's one of my. Yeah, I know. It's on my list. Um, my old actually just was ready at the library. So. Oh my god, fab. Yeah. So the dispossessed is about. Um, the relationship between like state and people um that is like the loosest possible discussion of it It, it's like a deep delve into like communism fascism like blah 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 all this stuff um and there is just simply not a single bing in that entire (laughs) book there's also not a bing in the left hand of darkness if the left hand of darkness ever binged once I would throw up. Like, there's just no yeah. binging whatsoever. And what's interesting I will me, say... Yeah, okay. Sorry, no, Go. no. I was just gonna say that the, in the the word for world is forest, there's some bings in there. Okay. All right, all right, fine. But I mean, the title is the word for world is forest. Which in and of itself is a bing. <laughs> <laughs> but again, if you're... This is your first time you've heard this discussion... Binging isn't a bad thing. Oh, you can successfully bing so well. And the proof of that is fucking Octavia Butler. Exactly. Who, I, I, yeah. Yes. All she, she does bings, is bing. She bings in a way. This is so silly. <laughs> she does it in a way that's different than I would say like the Hunger Games or even Labyrinth Lost mm. last, last time. Because it's like the bings are more central to what's going on whereas i feel like in like maybe sometimes in the hunger games and in labyrinth lost like it was almost like that like turn to the camera and be like by the way this is about this yep um whereas i think that the things like uh like octavia butler and ursula k le guin they like sometimes being in a way that's more interwoven into like the actual like who the character is i would say katniss is usually a good example of that too mm-hmm. also because mm-hmm. of how sh- she's super rigid too so. yes yes you will always save the hunger games from critics you were like listen <laughs> <laughs> this makes literary sense um yeah i yeah so all of this is to say that octavia butler will bing you and you will like it and that's just the end of the story like it's, it's she's a, the queen of bing well do you have the book? No ASMR jacket. today because That's okay. I um, read the ebook, but um, okay. I have the book jacket from the 
what would be on the book jacket from the publisher's website. And I stole it from the 2005 edition of the book. It was later published again by Grand Central in 2007, I think as a paperback. Um, But the 2005 hardback says, Fledgling, Octavia Butler's last novel, is the story of an apparently young amnesiac girl whose alarmingly unhuman needs and abilities lead her to a startling conclusion. She is, in fact, a genetically modified 53-year-old vampire. Forced to discover what she can about her stolen former life, she must at the same time learn who wanted and still wants to destroy her and those she cares for and how she can save herself. Fledgling is a captivating novel that tests the limits of otherness and questions what it means to be truly human. Is that what you have on your hardcover? Uh, no. So I have well. So I have the 2007 softcover by mm. Grand Central that you were just discussing. Great. So I have Shori is a mystery found alone in the woods. She appears to be a, a little black girl with traumatic amnesia and near fatal wounds. But Shori is a 53 year old vampire with a ravenous hunger for blood. The lost child of an ancient species of near mortals who live in dark symbiosis with humanity. Genetically modified to be able to walk in daylight, Shori now becomes the target of a vast plot to destroy her and her kind and in the final apocalyptic battle her survival will depend on whether all humans are bigots or all bigots are human i think that's a bad summary i think so too yeah what's what was whatever the final apocalyptic battle was Uh, i missed it that was in a different book (laughs) (laughs) like hello um we'll go over this but the um i believe the final apocalyptic battle that they're referring to is a court case (laughs) that happens in a very normal way. A trial. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a, a, court, a courtroom drama. Yeah, literally. I also pulled some reviews from the publisher's website. So I have a couple of like longies. Lila Alphonse from the Boston Globe wrote a long one. Like most of Butler's protagonists, Shori is black. The melanin in her skin is what allows her to withstand daylight. And as in Butler's other novels, the characters deal with questions about racism and the viciousness it brings out in American society. But in Fledgling, racism isn't simply a black and white issue. Butler goes on to explore ideas of community, justice, and race with a nod to the preternatural. Her writing is vivid and tense, and she manages to make even a drawn-out Ina Judicial Council seem complex and intriguing. The book is laced with emotionally and erotically charged encounters, some of which are disturbing, even after one remembers that Shori isn't actually a child. Butler also challenges conventional ideas about relationships and responsibility and introduces introduces new ones about morality and justice. It's a fascinating read, uncomfortable, horrifying, and ugly at times, but always compelling. That, I thought, was a great review. Stephen Kurse for the New York Times, um, in an article called The Essential Octavia Butler, wrote that... Butler's vampires are more cultured than monstrous, and fledgling an action-packed whodunit that builds into a riveting legal battle teams with (laughs) ideas... Right. (laughs) More accurate. Teams with ideas about the creatures as well as the mechanics of relationships. In charged, erotic prose, Butler weaves a mystery that is as titillating as it is disturbing. Fledgling is a work of fantasy, but it explores many of the ideas of consent and desire that Butler... Butler brooches in Lilith's brood, even when she wasn't writing about aliens, she was, Um, which I kind of love because it's so true. I think at the end of the day, Butler is a sci-fi queen. Um, She can't just have vampires. They need to be genetically modified vampires. (laughs) Um, So 
And also, right, when she wasn't writing about aliens, she was. That was great. Um, and the last one comes from Juno Diaz, writing for The Guardian um, in the Books of the Year article. Um, Juno Diaz wrote, A harrowing meditation on dominance, sex, addiction, miscegenation, and race that completely devours the genre which gave rise to it. How can you go wrong with a novel about a black vampire that has the line, do you love me, Shori, or do I just taste good? <laughs> so true. And that, I think, that's my favorite review because that, I think, is the one that, like, gets it the most. Yes. Um, yes. I, I concur. Yeah. And isn't trying to, like, uh, literary review it up too much, you know? Absolutely. Like, yeah. you did include the line, I don't know, really gets at the heart of it i think Do yes sure yes it just tastes good Do it just tastes good yes yeah. um well i have two goodreads reviews the Re- goodreads reviews weren't super exciting on average on goodreads it has a 3.84 stars out of five which i feel like is pretty much expected um yeah um so i took i picked one three star and one five star um so in Zana in 2018 gave it five stars and said, In this book, the themes around power, love, intimacy, family, and interdependence that were so captivatingly worked in the exogenous stories are explored again, this time drawing uh, ingeniously on vampire mythology and critiquing uh, USCN racism, (laughs) which is accurate. And then in 2017, Latasha gave it three stars and said, Well, it was okay. Nothing new, really. Oh my god. (laughs) incorrect incorrect (laughs) nothing new really my god and uh most of the three two stars reviews that i looked at they were all commenting on how they didn't like the trial um at the end because they were like that part was boring and then they were also commenting on shori being a kid Mm. like or like visually looking like a kid i mean that's one of the trickier parts of the book but it's not like the two starring i don't know you know what i mean a lot of people were saying that they felt like it was for shock value more than anything which i just think if you know anything about octavia butler that's just not true but i can see if you don't know anything about octavia butler like if this was your first octavia butler book that you ever read you'd be like what What the the fuck fuck? (laughs) yeah um i understand why you might think if this was your first octavia butler book that shory being in a child body is for shock value I don't agree with that analysis. Yes, I I agree. I agree. I also think that like the tw- like the, that review about the like nothing new really came out in 2017. Like that was a 2017 review. Like that's 12 mm. years later. Mm-hmm. And I always think that Octavia Butler is prescient, but people have written more and more about the topic, so it might seem like people who are reading it now are be like, well. Other people have written about this. Right. But, like, the important thing to remember is the context in which Octavia Butler was writing. Octavia Butler was the beginning of that. Right. So. Give her her due. Right. I have a plot overview for us. Um, Do you want the three-sentence version or the eight-paragraph version? (laughs) Hit me with the three-second version. uh, Three-sentence version. Okay. I'm down for that. I didn't write it down, but I think I can do it. Um, okay. And then I will give the long one anyway. Um, but the short one is that um, Shori, our main character, wakes up in a cave with no knowledge of who she is, where she's from, or what she's doing. She finds the ruins 
of her family home, picks up a couple people to drink blood from, meets her father, whose home is then also ruined, and she needs to use the people that she's been taking blood from to go find help. She does go find help with people that her dad wanted to be her life mates. Um, and they identify who burned down everybody's stuff. There's an intense <laughs> legal battle and Shori wins. The end. Um, so all that being said, um, the actual plot overview is this. Shori is a 53-year-old member of the Ina species who appears to be a 10-year-old African-American girl. The Ina are nocturnal, long-lived, and derive sustenance by drinking human blood. They have a symbiotic relationship with humans. We will discuss the actual nature of that relationship and whether symbiotic is like the word. Um, taking They take sustenance from them, blood, in return for pleasure, a boosted immune system, and an extended life for the humans. However, withdrawal from a specific Ina's venom often leads to human death. The story opens as Shori awakens with no knowledge of who or where she is in a cave and suffering from critical injuries. Although she is burned and has skull trauma, she kills and eats the first creature that approaches her. Eating this creature allows her to heal quickly enough to walk and explore on her own. She runs into the ruins of a small community where a construction worker named Wright picks her up on the side of the road. She bites Wright because she finds his scent irresistible and they begin their relationship. While staying at Wright's cabin, Shori realizes that she's in need of more blood, so she feeds on other inhabitants in the neighborhood and develops a relationship with an older woman named Theodora. Shori and Wright return to the burned-out abandoned village near where she woke up to learn more about her past. They eventually meet Yosef, Shori's father, who tells her the burned-out town was once her home where she had lived with her mother and sisters. They also learn that Wright and Shori's mutually beneficial relationship makes Wright Shori's symbiont. Further, Shori's dark skin is the result of a genetic modification. The Ina were experimenting to make their kind resistant to daylight. All other Ina are white-skinned. Later, before Shori is... Wait, yeah. I know you're reading the Wikipedia yeah. article... But isn't that not true? No, that is true. But was she had a brother in the in the community with? Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah. And he was like light. He, he was, was like, like light he was, skinned. He like. But he was not white skinned. <laughs> correct. Right. True. Yeah. I forget his name. That was, but he did have one, I've, and he was also black. Um. Yes. So valid. Right. She. Sorry. Yeah. No. 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 Uh, yes. You're just reading the Wikipedia. Uh, That's correct. I did some light editing. Uh, summary. Yeah. Yes, but I was like, wait a second. That's not true. Okay. Right. Continue. Here we go. Continue. If we see any other continuity errors, we will shout them out as we find them. If you're listening, Wikipedia, get it right. Get it right. Yeah. The the big entity that is Wikipedia. Later, before Shori is able to move in with Yosef, her settlement is burned down as short. Uh, his settlement is burned down as Shori's home was. Shori and Wright meet the only two human symbionts who survived, Celia and Brooke. Shori adopts Celia and Brooke as her own symbionts to save their lives. Their bonding is initially uncomfortable for all of them. However, as symbionts become addicted to the venom of one particular Ina. So Brooke and Celia were bonded to Shori's dad. So it's like not comfy for them to try and bond um, with Shori. Go. Celia was bonded to Shori's brother, I believe. What? Brooke to the dad. The fuck? Yeah. Okay, there are... This is the other thing that we will get into is, like, there are so many names that I eventually yeah. stopped trying to figure out who was related to who. Um, yeah. At the end, they, like, introduce a name structure 
for symbionts that like helps a little bit that it's like so and so sim ina name that like yeah. makes it easier to figure out who exactly belongs to which family group but because butler also eschewed words like grandfather cousin sister yeah like it becomes a little like intense trying to figure out who who's with who um so yes yeah, so sorry brooke was with yosef and yep. celia was with shory's brother yes so the four of them celia brooke wright and shory flee to another house that yosef owns while at this new house during the day, they are attacked by several men with gasoline and guns, but because of the genetic enhancements made on Shori, she is awake and senses it happening, and they're able to escape. The group travels to the settlement of the Ina Gordon family, where they are welcomed and guarded by human symbionts during the day. The attackers also raid the settlement there, but Shori and the human symbionts are able to fight back. They capture three attackers alive and kill the rest. The Gordon family interrogates the intruders and finds that they are the same attackers who killed Shori's parents and have been sent, allegedly, by the Silks, another Ina family. The Gordons suspect that the attacks on Shori are motivated by a disdain for the genetic experimentation that created her. After failing to get a confession from the Silks, the Gordon family calls a council of judgment on Shori's behalf. Thirteen Ina families and their symbionts come to the Gordon settlement to discuss the Silks' attack on Shori. During the council, the Silk representative, Catherine Dahlman, sends one of her symbionts to kill Theodora, Shori's symbiont. This attack succeeds. Thus, in addition to issuing a punishment upon the Silks, the council must also punish Catherine Dahlman. The Silk sons are taken from them to be adopted by other Ina families, ensuring that the Silk line will die out. Catherine Dahlman is sentenced to have her legs amputated at the mid-thigh. Um, she refuses this punishment and attempts to kill Shori, who fights back and wounds her. Catherine is killed by being decapitated and burned. After regaining consciousness, Shori decides to join the Braithwaite family, to whom she is distantly related, and learn the ways of the Ina to create her own family. Long. Do, do, do. I know. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, yeah. Like, it, it, that was some, a very um, sanitized version oh my God, of the relationships, right. too. Right. Every, just like to be clear, when you are a, an, an Ina with a, with a symbiont, you are having sex with them too. You're, you're biting you're them for blood, banging. which is which is not the sex part. However, it does feel good, right, for the human. So that's a little erotic. I'm pretty sure it feels good in an erotic way. And then you also have like human sex, right? Not just vampire eroticism. So that's a very so basically Shori, and this is the part that we've been talking about. Shori looks like a kid. And she's having sex with adults. And technically she is not not a full-grown Ina either. But her dad is like, no, it's okay for her to have sex right now. She's mature enough for that. But she's not mature enough to have the Ina equivalent of sex, which is mating. Which is when you yes. exchange venom with another Ina yes. and then you become like bonded for life. And also you don't mate with just one. You mate with one and all their siblings of the same sex. So it's yeah. like yeah. a whole thing. Um, and that's how you have Ina babies. Yeah, so it's like this weird blurry line with Shori, for sure. And also, like, then we get into, like, when we're talking about the relationship that um, Ina have with their symbionts, like, Wright is ostensibly not a pedophile, but because she bites him and he becomes, like, attached to her and becomes her symbiont, he becomes sexually attracted to her. Um, is my understanding of it, even though as a human, he 
is reading her as like a 10 year old girl yeah so he when he picks her up on the street he's like i need to take you to the hospital like right. this isn't okay he's like very much good citizen and then he try- she's like i knows that she can't go to the hospital and he like she bites him because he's trying to like lock her in the car so that he can take her to the hospital and then once she bites him he's like whoa that felt good and then that's when the relationship turns Mm -hmm. yeah so that is it's like it it is yucky i'm not gonna lie like i those that first part of the book anyway before we get into all of that you want me to do a rundown of the characters would you please it's very quick i'm just doing like the absolute bare bones who's who okay so we have shori who right also um names renee for a second and i just only wrote that down because uh i think in 2005 is when twilight was starting to come out too (laughs) and um the baby at the end of twilight's named renesme so i just thought that was funny so i put the renee in there but anyway shori she's our main character 53 year old ina with memory loss and has been genetically modified to have higher melanin so she is black and can stay awake in the sun um the other ina fall asleep like they are they cannot wake up during daytime. they don't sleep in coffins Um, but it's coffin style vampirism where they're just knocked out (laughs) right yeah there's not um yosef is shori's father um and he dies in an attack that burns down his village or his settlement. Wright is Shori's first symbiont. He picks her up on the side of the road to give her shelter, and Shori bites him, and then he becomes horny for her, slash likes her, um, and attached to her. So then we have Theodora, Shori's second symbiont, who was killed by Catherine Dahlman at the hands of her symbiont. Celia was Shori's brother symbiont, who Shori saves from going to shock after her brother is killed. Brooke is Shori's father symbiont, who Shori saves from going into shock after her father is killed. And then we have the Gordon family, which is an Ina family. Um, the mo- main three from that family are David, Hayden, and Preston. Um, which are uh, hilarious they, white boy names. They are. Ina, they're, so they're, they live in Northern California, and David and Preston want to be our brothers, and they want to be mated to Shori when she's older, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Hayden is the elder father, a.k.a. kind of like the matriarch of the family. Um, Patriarch. Ina families. Oh, yeah. Matri- <laughs> it's a matriarchal society, but Hayden is the patriarch. The patriarch. Because so the, the, the male and female Inas are separated from each other. And they live in their, like, their own gender-based communities, I guess. Um, and the the female Inas have stronger venom than the male Inas. Um, the female Inas also do not have boobs. Yep. Fun fact. Fun fact that we learn quite a lot of times. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay. And then we have Joel and Martin Harrison. Martin is a Gordon symbiont. Who, he's, who he is a symbiont to... I don't know, but he is was a school teacher, and Joel is his son who really wants to be Shory symbiont. Um, he went and to they're business on their way school. To step, yeah, yeah, and they're uh, they're on their way to establishing that relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay, then we have the Silks, which is um, an Ina family. The two main Silks are Milo and Russell, and they are the racist Ina who think that Shory is an abomination because she is black. Um, uh, Milo is like 500 plus years old and um, both of them are just generally horrible, racist murderers, etc 
Then we have the Braithwaites, Joan and Margaret. They are Shory's distant relatives, and she's going to go live with them at the end, and Joan takes over as her advocate in the trial. And then Catherine Dahlman um, is was the advocate for the Silks, and she killed Theodora in order to prove that Shory wasn't an Ina because she was proving that Shory wouldn't have a normal Ina reaction to a symbiont being killed. Um, and she is also generally horrible and those are pretty much our main our our main players if you will yeah yeah so i will say that re plot and characters shori wright theodora yosef celia and brooke make up the first two-thirds three-fifths of the novel and then everyone else the gordon family joel and martin the silks the braithwaites Catherine dahlman they all get kind of like squeezed in at the end for what becomes this like intense legal battle and we learn a lot about the ina justice system so just to clarify because i think the wikipedia did like a bad job of this like there are two kinds of justice system Um, One is a council of judgment when something bad has already been done and you are determining whether the person accused is the guilty party of doing the bad thing and then determining a punishment. There's also a council of the goddess, which has not been invoked for about 2000 years, but essentially it's like a more friendly version where you can be like, I think the thing that this family is doing is not good. And then the council makes a ruling on whether or not that family can continue to do that thing. Um, So a big like plot twist is that the Silks are guilty of murdering Shori's family. Um, And then Shori is like, did you ever call a council of the goddess to be like, hey, I think genetic modification of Ina is wrong. And they were like, no. (laughs) Um, And then the other thing is that like the way it works for punishment is that it's all about like family lines. Like it's very difficult to come to a death sentence with council of judgment, councils of judgment. The most typical, like you did a really bad thing. This is what's going to happen. Judgment is that um, your family gets like split up and scattered. And then the name dies out because all the children take on the names of other families that they get adopted to. My first question was, like, why do you think that Butler chose to have Shory as a child or in, like, a childlike body? That's such a solid question. I think it definitely goes beyond shock value, right? We've been talking about that. I think age gaps and consent are an interesting thing that Octavia Butler is, like, kind of obsessed with. You'll recall sarah that in parable of the sower there's also a very significant age gap that becomes part of the plot um in that case it does happen between like an ostensibly adult woman i think she's like 19 and a much older man um yeah but i think my understanding is that butler is drawing parallels to not saying they're one-to-one but drawing interesting parallels between it's like examining consent dynamics she does it in a way that like also speaks to racism yeah um and i think you also see this in kindred um that there's like this interesting thing that she does where she's like well when we're talking about racism we're talking about slavery which means we're also talking about 
consent. Like there's like this line, like yep. a tenuous line that she's sort of like, she's not equating, but she is saying, do you see where the similarities happen? Um, yeah. And she's not binging it, but I think that that's there. Yeah. I think so. I, I saw this on Wikipedia, which kind of gave me the, the start of my thought. Cause I wasn't really sure, but one, one one of the critical reviewers and scholars who have looked into fledgling, fledgling noted that um, Black Americans mm-hmm. have a history of having to grow up early, specifically Black girls or young women, um, back to slavery because childhood was not uh, something that was afforded to Black slaves and slaves in general. Um, so I think that mm-hmm. that I think is kind of what you're getting mm-hmm. at, like that consent line and age, like isn't something as constructed as I would say in white America because of like not going through that generational, not going through that trauma of being slaves. Like you, it's not something that has now like a cultural line. Um, I also think kind of on a more general to go, to go with that thought is that I also think that she might have been commenting on the fact that adults undercut the traumas that children go through and treat them other and like don't take their intellect strengths and honesty seriously um which is why i think maybe could have been the part of the choice to make her look look like a child um uh, something that i think directly in the text that might support that is that shori is berated in during the trial by joan for talking down to milo silk who's over 500 years old even though he's like a racist piece of shit they say he's over 500 years old. You can't talk to your elder like that because you're only 53 years old, which I think um, it's like the the injustices that adults perpetrate against children. And then a child says, this adult did that to me. And then it's like, well, a ch- like you're a child. So it doesn't really matter. Like your voice can't be heard. Like I feel like children are one of the least, the one of the, the groups in America that have like the least agency, like as a whole, our, our children. And I think that might, might, might have also been part of that, is that anyone who's depicted as smaller or lesser than, and I think we get into that at the end, that gets binged, I think, a little bit um, on like the disability side of things at the end of the book. But I think that that might have been part of it um, with the child like an- being a child and having amnesia. Like those things go together. Yeah. Do we think also that this is maybe... Octavia talking about children as change makers, right? That yeah. like that the fact that Shori wins her, her trial and does so in part by refusing to bow to expectation to follow rules to like play the silly respect games that she's supposed to play. Like part of it feels like also putting Shori in like a child's body is a reinforcement of the idea that like children will bring the change like not to put too fine a point on it but like children are the future you know what i mean like (laughs) i get it yeah i think it's it reads slightly differently to me like you know when a boomer says to you like "Ugh, your generation is gonna change the world like i don't it feels different than that in that like there's a certain sense of like we in in fledgling i think there's a certain sense of like it has been fucked but you have the ability to unfuck it um or at least try i can definitely see like this might be applying a little bit more of like the modern 
take on it, but not that 2005 was that long ago, but it kind of was at this point. I feel like people always talk about now kids like not having the biases until like their parents give them biases and Shori um, doesn't necessarily have those biases because not only is she childlike, but she also has amnesia. So she has this like blank slate um, so to speak of like not understanding Ina traditions and not understanding like the Ina context. So she can only navigate things based off like her internal sense of right and wrong, which it's interesting though, because that is ascribed, ascribed to the character that is black. So her take on what's right or wrong is going to be different because she can already start to feel other people's prejudices and racism coming at her. And she like, remembers certain things too it's like not like she doesn't she remembers like certain general things about the world but she doesn't remember things about being an ina so specifically but yeah so i think it might have like you said it's like children being a force for change and it might not even just be children but it could just be like somebody who's coming and like almost like leaving their biases at the door and like not thinking too much about tradition can be the change maker like it being like if i leave tradition behind why don't we push forward with something that's better that doesn't follow these social constructs yeah go ahead right and like what i also think is interesting about that is that like shori is not shori does not reject all elements of tradition it's just the ones that are clearly stupid you know what i mean like it's like she's like yeah i agree to a legal counsel of judgment like that makes sense to me or she'll be like you didn't use this traditional thing that is literally 2000 years in the grave called the council of the goddess like yeah and that was dumb of you you should have done that um, yes and it's also so, like and pointing out hypocrisy in that moment being like if right. you are care so much about these traditions why didn't you use a tradition that you had at your power to stop this from happening right and so it's that sort of like clear-eyed rejection of the things that drive people apart from one another and a clear push towards community collaboration in the name of like enabling that community to continue to exist like i think yeah yeah yeah. i i get where you're coming from and i also think i'm like making a little sense i think in terms of i just see that your next question is like why do you think butler chose to have shori have memory loss and i think the easy ungenerous answer is that like it's because through shori we still need to learn stuff and if shori doesn't know anything it's easy to sort of it's easier to avoid those sorts of things where like shori is just thinking to herself about all these things that she's known and grown up with since birth and like has no reason to be thinking about because that's just the way that life works Um, and it's an easy way for us to like have everything be explained. I do think that's part of it um, yeah. because Butler has come up with like an intensely complex uh, socio-political system that we need explained to us in order for this book to make any sense. Um, I also think that, and we've talked about this a little bit, you've touched on it and maybe said it better than I can, but like in terms of like the disability politic of this book, again, we're drawing lines there's like this interconnected web between the ideas of like childhood, disability, consent, and race that like sort of draws that web where like the people who are fighting her on the Council of Judgment, it's like the Silks and Catherine Dahlman, 
often conflate Shori's race with her disability, where it's not just that, like, she's not actually Ina because she's black. It's like she's not actually Ina because the way that she's responding to things is not Ina. And yeah. the reason she's not responding to things in the Ina way is because she literally got the shit knocked out of her. Yes. Um, and By I can't remember other anything. Ina. By other Ina, right. So yeah. I think that has a lot to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. What were your thoughts on that? Well, I have just this quote that backs it up um, is because one of I pulled one of the quotes for the people who ended up ruling, one of the Ina that ruled in favor of the silks at the end that I was like, oh, this is where I, I feel like <laughs> the bang, the bing, the bing comes in. Uh, the Ina's name is Ion Andre. Mm-hmm. Um, I stand with the Silks and with Catherine. I don't want to. I believe the Silks may have mur- murdered Shori's families. It's certainly possible. And Catherine may have sent her symbiont after Shori's symbiont. But like Kira, I cannot in good conscience base such a judgment on the words of someone as disabled as Shori is. Which is in, it's so binged, but it's like the person giving, delivering that judgment is saying, I think those people may have murdered you, murdered your whole family. I think that that could have and likely did happen. But because you are, because you are black and because you are young and because you are disabled, I don't care. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, okay, great. Like, like, it's like your words were truthful and those, their words were untruthful, but because of who you are, I don't care. Or like, so, I cannot in good conscience prioritize your needs yes above those of us who are white adult and able-bodied yes exactly exactly Exactly. which is so tough um and yeah i agree that like when we there's like the scene where all of the council members give their rulings and also get like a little soapbox moment where they get to explain why and that is the bingiest of all bing scenes in the whole book um in my opinion but in case anyone like it's it's hard because it's like it's really an in case you missed it moment there's not a lot of like new information about how these people are thinking or like where the lines are um it's just like a a real banging you over the head with it moment but you, you know what though i think it's like in a way i feel like it's necessary um maybe not necessarily like on like a literary reading level but on like a political level because Mm -hmm. in the real world in the non-book world politicians say shit like this all the time and then people are like wow they really said the quiet part out loud and it's like people are always saying those things out loud you just Mm -hmm. have to listen Mm -hmm. um and then i think what butler was also doing was putting these statements interwoven with people who were who were middling through it and being like well i can tell that they lied so even if i don't want to rule with them i'm ruling for shori right like i'm ruling for shori even when i don't feel like i want to or i'm not ruling against the silks but i'm ruling against Catherine. um you know like that they're picking like the if we're really politicizing it they're picking the middle of the road uh what's what's the word when you're neither Oh, like moderate. they're picking the mo- the moderate world word the uh, road right. They're picking the moderate way. Whereas, like the other quote that I wrote down is the person who 
ruled right after Ion Andre, Elizabeth Akmatova. I stand with Shori and I stand with her because I've watched her. She is impaired. I can't imagine what it would be like to lose the memory of nearly all of the years of one's life. Her memory was stolen from her, but her ability to reason wasn't stolen. The questions she asked, questions that were answered again and again with lies and misdirection, were good, sensible questions. The questions she answered, she answered honestly. The murderers who killed her families and her symbiont, the thieves that stole her past from her, should these people be rewarded because they did such a savagely thorough job? No, of course not. Shuri, on the other hand, should be rewarded for using her intellect to protect herself and to find the murderers. So I think what Butler is saying is like you have people who are willing to stand up and say, quote unquote, the quiet part out loud, right? And then you have people, which is the hateful, discriminatory, racist, um, ableist, etc. things out loud, and then you have people who are willing to say the moderate thing out loud, the kind of like waffling, both sidesing it, and then you have some, like the rare few people who are also able to say, because of who Shori is, is why I believe her. Like not in spite of or despite like her disability or her race or her age i believe her it's saying like these all things make it so i should believe her because i'm listening to the person who is at the biggest disadvantage in our community and she still has to fight like tooth and nail to argue this case in front of us so i think i kind of lost my point in there but i think that that is like no i hear you yeah 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 like it's like the binging it the binging it to bring it all around is like to say not in a literary like literary quality kind of way but in a like political way to bring us home to say like look at the differences between these two and whose side do you really want to be on Mm -hmm. outside of this book but in the world whose side do you really want to be on right yeah 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 i think you summed it up perfectly yeah i think for me the trial part of the book really dragged and like it was kind of hard to get through like i'll be honest there were way too many family names too many kinds of like family relationships to keep track of all of them had new names (laughs) everyone was moving to canada for some reason like it was just like this whole thing where you got like family background on everybody and it was hard to keep everybody straight but the actual giving of the verdict and in in part the trial itself it didn't wrap a bow on the book right like it wasn't like and now i have made the perfect statement and everything makes sense but is instead like a critical examination of the relationship between all the things that we've been talking about um and their relationship in turn to like white power structures yeah Um, and like white supremacy in a way that like is incredibly smart and like important and good to read yeah i think that the actual trial like the trial dialogue like the what was happening in the trial room was really interesting i think it was Mm -hmm. like the lead up to the trial like that was got a little it was a lot especially especially since it was like so action-packed up until that moment right there was yeah. a lot of like fleeing and burning and running and getting in the and car fighting and, and, and yeah. yeah 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 having a lot of sex bringing and people investigating. around like, yeah yeah and then it was like now sit and listen to the family history of everyone Shori's family ever knew <laughs> I know she like 
a butler really waited until that part to be like, and now I will info dump info the world building right, right. here. Right. <laughs> um, but what do you think of the symbiotic relationship slash dependence relationship between humans and Ina? Mm. <laughs> I have Bro. a quote. I have a quote to start us off if you want it. Yeah. Just go ahead. No, hit me. This this is also from Wikipedia. Um from Florian Bast, who is an author who has analyzed Octavia's works. And so Florian Bast argues that fledgling is openly asking whether the highest degree of agency is automatically the most desirable state of being or whether there is a higher potential for happiness in choosing a specific kind of dependence. Which I just thought was interesting. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, for me, okay, I've actually talked about this in the context of Fifty Shades of Grey, which is to say that all literature is related. (laughs) If I can make a butler to Fifty Shades of Grey intertextual analysis, nothing is real. But I do think that, like, there is a certain fantasy. It, It comes with the vampire fantasy a lot. Um, but it doesn't need to, that essentially is like someone wealthy and powerful who can take care of you, like swoops into your life and then does that. And that is the romance, right? Like in Fifty Shades of Grey, she like doesn't want the kind of sexual relationship that Christian Grey wants. I think they like don't get along that well, but like the sex is like, good or whatever but the real fantasy of it is that he will always be able to protect and provide for her um i think that's also true of twilight um yeah and i think that like this is a really interesting sort of like analysis of that kind of relationship where i think that like rather than taking it at face value fledgling really goes into like the problems and like yeah. Um, potential like interesting or yucky things about that kind of swoop you up and protect your relationship right like all the Ina that we meet are wealthy enough to have fucking compounds like they have communes of they're, la- they're landlords like almost yeah. all of them are they're landlords. all landlords and like and, property flippers <laughs> right exactly and like um, I think some of them are like cattle people yeah. Right? There's, like, one group that's, like, really, like, fucking off in the middle of nowhere, Iowa. But, like, they're, you know, they're all incredibly wealthy. They're all white. They're all able to take care of their symbionts in a way that, like, is really alluring in the sense that we are trying to escape. At, at least I'll speak for myself. Like, in the sense that I'm trying to escape capitalism. Like, how many times have I said to you, Sarah, specifically... I want to fuck off and have a goat farm in the middle of nowhere, Vermont. How many times have I said that to you? I Like a lot. Like, like, a, like so many times. And like, this is Butler being like, okay, what if there was a group of people that like could give you that and could also give you like an extended life to do whatever you want. It will be a healthy life. Um, you just need to give a little blood and it will be pleasurable. But then also sort of picking that apart where, like, at one point, Shori learns that, like, 
if she told one of her symbionts or somebody that she had like influenced with her venom to kill themselves, they would do it. Yeah. Um, and so then there also is like this, like intrinsically involved, like element of like, of power that just like, as much as we like to talk about, like, I think this is where I like sort of like deviate from like the symbiotic relationship analysis where it's like, is it a symbiotic relationship if like one person is literally mind controlling the other person? There's a control dynamic. There is a huge control dynamic. And so like, and that's also like when we talk about right, like right struggles a lot with the idea that like Shori can control him. Um, You can tell that he's having a lot of feelings about the fact that like Shori did not give him his out until they were well and truly bonded and he was already her symbiont. Um, Yeah. And it's interesting in that, like that was sort of a traditional misstep on Shori's part. Shori uh, later learns that she's supposed to like bite someone, reveal who she is and what she's doing. Um, invite them to join her at this point they're already a little high on her venom but like it's not like they can't say no um and then give them the opportunity to walk away or whatever instead what she does with right is that she like basically waits until he's her first symbiont they're like well and truly bonded and then she's like you could leave me here to die or you can be in it to win it (laughs) yeah um which is like very tricky and it's like hard because she doesn't know any better but also like, now Wright's just stuck with it. And he has a lot of feelings about, like, the sort of polyamorous vibe that's going on in Ina culture. He, like, really doesn't like sharing. He's, like, okay with it as long as it's the women because he can kind of understand that that's, like, not something he can give. But when Shori involves Joel, the business major <laughs> and son of one of the uh, who's also black, symbionts, who's also black, right, huge deal, also, right, gets very squicky but because he's like under her fucking vampire spell he can't leave he can't want to leave and because shori said things like you will be nice to each other to both of them it's like slowly making their relationship better because she has like holds that power yes over both of them (laughs) yeah yeah i don't know what do you make of it like what's your What's your I I don't know. I think, like, up to everything except for um, the, like, mind control, I'm cool with. You know? Like, there's pleasure in the relationship, but then they can, like, make people do whatever they want. Like, we get the doctor who who interrogates Shori, the human doctor symbiont of one of the silks that interrogates Shori, who, like clearly is more interested in how her brain healed so fast and is interested in like ina biology but because he is the symbiont of the silks he has to ask her a bunch of racist stuff that shori can kind of discern he doesn't actually want to ask her and he like looks in pain asking these questions that go against his nature or like one of the guys who attacks um the gordon compound um he like clearly doesn't actually want to do this and he himself it wasn't like harboring racist feelings towards her she just he just was under the control of another vampire or like even the relationship with the silks in general it's shory makes it very explicit 
that she thinks that the silks don't like humans and they really don't like their symbiotic relationship with humans um, and that they have genuine disdain for humans as well. Um, And that, so there's that added element to it too, is not all of the um, Ina want that. Um, I will say, I do feel like I like the part of it that kind of emphasizes the relationship that you may have with a person where it's like, you may be good at one thing and somebody else may be good at something else. And then like together you get that benefit or like you might not have ever, all of the resources for somebody, something, but somebody else might have them and they should share them with you because of like dependent on your, your human, your other human being is like not a bad thing. Um, I like that part of it, but I think it does lose the plot a little bit with the mind control. Right. I mean, it's a strong argument for polyamory up until the mind control. Right. I, I think that the mind control, or it's like kind of like a hierarchy too, because there's like one person, one the Ina above, and then everyone else below. And they might develop like relationships to each other, but it's still, you got that one person on top, which is like still a hierarchy. Um, I think that's probably something that Butler would have explored more in, like, a future book in the fledgling world, so to speak. Like, I think that she probably would have explored this more because I would say it's probably the part of the book that feels like maybe the least fleshed out. The sequel to Fledgling, the partial manuscript, was uh, workingly titled Asylum. Um, And... It's in there. So if anyone needs to make a trip to Huntington Library in Pasadena, California, and would like, I have the finding aid. Email me. I will tell you which box it's in. Like, we just need to know. Because I think. Well, I think you have to, I think you have to research with them. (laughs) Like, you have to be doing research to get access to it. Because there's public, there's like the public part of the, the Huntington Library um which has like exhibits it's huge it's like these beautiful grounds it's like gardens museums etc etc there are some of her papers on display there but i think to actually access all of her papers you would have to make like a research request okay here it is conditions governing access open for use by qualified researchers and by appointment i don't know what a qualified researcher is but There is no, like, sometimes the permissions are like, you need permission from the estate or whatever. So I'm like almost 100% sure if you were just like, I'm a graduate student, (laughs) please give me access to Octavia Butler's papers. They'd be like, sure, what time do you want your appointment to be? So get in there. Um, But all of that is to say that I think you're right that asylum would probably definitely get into this more because like, there's a lot of discussion of the mechanics And there's like a a hint of discussion about the morality of these kinds of relationships. Um, I think right is our biggest window into that. Um, And I have a funny fucking right quote. They're talking, Shori and Wright are talking about Zoe, who's another Ina on the Council of Judgment. And she's like very beautiful. She's tall, lean and blonde, like most Ina, but she has a striking memorable, she is a striking memorable woman. When she arrived, Shori had asked Wright what he thought of her, and this is what he said. Sculpted. Perfect. Like one of those Greek statues. If if she had boobs, I'd say she was the best looking woman I've ever seen. (laughs) And then Shori goes, (laughs) I I highlighted this so hard. 
poor Wright, maybe one of the Braithwaite women symbionts would have large breasts. Right <laughs> is a boob guy. I mean, I, why can't he? He can't it? help it. And like, so Wright that's is like, a boob guy. right. And so like, poor Wright. He's a, at the end of the day, he's a tits man, and he's in a relationship with not only a ten-year-old child body, but also like a person who will never develop breasts. Um, poor man. Like he can't, but that's the thing is like, if left to his own devices, right. Would be with like a fucking spaghetti Western tavern owner. The kids up to like <laughs> a, chin. a buxomed lady. A buxom lady. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. A buxom baby. <laughs> Do you think the trial results at the end were optimistic, pessimistic, somewhere in between? I think they were realistic. Yeah. In that, like, it wasn't a unanimous vote. (laughs) Like, we did not YA it. There was, like, a lot of, like, not everyone had come around. And it definitely meant that Shori was going to have to go out into this new world with enemies. Um, Yeah. I also think that she... The fact that she ended up with the Braithwaites at the end, that she was, like, going to go stay with them for a couple of years and, like, learn what's doing was, like, very interesting because it wasn't that Shori was like, and I now reject all tradition. Like, Joan Braithwaite was like, you cannot talk to Milo like that. Like, you you just can't. Like, not only yeah. is it stupid strategically, but it's also just, like, you should not do that. Um, and Shori's going to go live with her. For several years and learn how to be an Ina. Um, Yeah. And so I think that, like, it's interesting in that it is not a complete rejection of the system. Clearly, it is an acceptance that, like, this is a better way of doing things than the human criminal justice system, right? Like, there's a lot of talking about how, like, prisons are bunk um, and, like, what appropriate punishment looks like, like, some like discussion of like whether an eye for an eye is like an actually valid way of like looking at consequence for bad action. Right. Um, so I think that like, it's an open result in that, like ultimately the verdict was optimistic. Um, but the way that we got there and where that leaves us is much more middle of the road. I will say the only, the only, I completely agree. The only addition I have is that I think the, the like belief in this system to prevent any future harm is, was like optimistic in it's like the, the Ina are optimistically believe in it. Um, Whereas Shori is like starting to see like loopholes in it, but, but the cultural belief that that will protect everyone that it should protect is definitely very optimistic. Um, I think honestly, so like maybe I've read too much. What is it? Uh, like, uh, grim, dark stuff in my, in my life. But I was like the true, the, like I thought it was, the ruling was optimistic in the sense of like the fact that they did rule in Shori's favor I think it was like seven to four or something like that. Seven, like that was like, wow, that's pretty good. Like that's like more than I ever thought that like Octavia Butler would give us. Right. 
Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like if it was a like, true condemnation of the system, it would have ruled against Shori, and then it would have had to be like about making it better. Um, yeah. yeah. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Um, overall, did you like it? Yes, I did, but it was not my favorite Octavia Butler book. Yeah. Yeah. That's how I feel too. Yeah. Like I, I is it a masterclass? Yeah. Cause Octavia Butler wrote it, but is it like my favorite thing that she's ever written? No. Um, I think it's like, yeah, it's a good access point for her. Right. Like, especially if you are like, oh, like I'm more of a fantasy person. Um, like, but I want to, or you feel like Gothic literature, right. But I want to read like American Gothic. Right. Yeah. Yeah, But I want to read Octavia Butler. This is like a great starting place for you. I don't think it's a starter book to be clear, (laughs) but I do think that it's like a good starting place. If that's where you're coming to Octavia Butler from. Um, yeah, I think like her real, like for me, the works that hit home from Octavia Butler are Bloodchild and her other short stories, Lilith's Brood, Parable of the Sower, things that are more speculative or hard science fiction for me are where she really shines. But these things that are like that cross between like fantasy, modernity, um, fledgling and kindred, I think are like sister works in that way. Yeah. Um, they definitely have their own value. They're just like not my favorite kind of Octavia Butler. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I liked it too. I think like you said, so I've been watching all of Martin Scorsese's movies. Jesus Christ. This year. <laughs> this year. So it's interesting when you become like so familiar with like somebody's works is that, you know, like your context and your like liking of something is like dependent also on what you know that that creator can do. Like, Martin Scorsese now has some of my favorite movies I've ever seen. And then when I see a a Martin Scorsese movie that doesn't like live up to that level, I'm like, Mm. well, it was still a good movie, but it wasn't a good Martin Scorsese movie. And that's a little bit what I feel about with Octavia, that we're with um, Fledgling. Like, that's like, I'm like, this is good, but it could have been better. You know, like on the scale of other books, I'm like, four stars four and a half stars you know like on the scale of like octavia butler octavia butler books i'm more like three three and a half three point seven five you know it's like because that there's that difference right there but i think Um, that really does do you like for me i'm putting that down to taste do you think that that's accurate in terms of like your taste for octavia books like what you like in her books it is a little bit more, like you said, taste, because it's like, well, this is, I think, still has all of the Octavia Butler ethos in, in it. It's just, like, not my absolute favorite one of hers. Um, and I think that it's just, like, the plotting isn't her normal, like, pacing either. All right. Well, what are you reading now, Sarah? So right now, I am just started um, Babel. 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 Um. Yeah, Babel might also be right. But I just started that one. Um, and then I also just started uh, <laughs> House of Mirth by Edith Wharton. <laughs> you and your fucking Edith Wharton. You really sold me <laughs> on it. And I swear to God, Sarah, I started Age of Innocence. I looked at the first page like 20 times and just was like, no, I can't. 
Watch the movie. Can you please watch the movie? I'll watch the movie. <laughs> I'll watch the movie for you. Watch the movie, which was made in the 1990s with Winona Ryder, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Daniel Day-Lewis. I love Winona Ryder. Yeah, and period piece Winona Ryder is like... Okay. So yeah. All right, all right, all right. I'm please, in. I'm please in. Please watch the movie. I'll watch it. Okay, what are you reading? <laughs> um, Right now I'm reading... Well, this is interesting. So I borrowed from the library but have not yet started Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney. Um, I told someone that I was reading Fledgling for the pod and they said that um, I might like this book. Um, but they also gave me... <laughs> a bit of a like thing where they were like Samuel R. Delaney hated being put on panels with Octavia Butler because they were just like the two black sci-fi authors and everyone was like surely they'll oh. love each other and he was like get me out of here um but it's good it's uh the brief description is reality unravels in a midwestern town in this sci-fi epic um by the acclaimed author of Babel 17 um basically like just this town loses its ability to like communicate um which is very similar in concept to an octavia butler story also featured in blood child yeah. where everyone forgets how to talk um and then i'm also reading the great believers by rebecca mckay for the first time i'm okay. like so late to the party but i'm enjoying it um sarah where'd you get your book babe listen mm -hmm. i got my book at the Huntington Library in Pasadena, California's gift shop <laughs> after viewing Octavia Butler's papers on display. <laughs> so I don't know where that fits in the point um, system, but I did buy you it. You bought it. You bought it, but you didn't buy it from Amazon or Walmart. So yeah. what is, or, okay, we'll call that an indie book. I got half a Indie bookstore. Yeah, yeah, we'll call that, yeah. yeah. So we'll call that seven for Sarah. And I got mine from the library, which brings me up to 6.5. For those of you who are new to our point system, we're judging each other on where we got our books. If you get it from the library, you get one point. If you get it from Target, Walmart, or like Barnes and Noble, uh, you get minus half a point. If you get it from an indie bookstore, you get half a point. And if you get it from Amazon, it's minus two points and we all hate you. Um, this is our final segment um where we like to do readers advisory um i already see that we have thought of very similar things um for the readers advisory um readers advisory is a practice that librarians engage in where um someone will say i really liked this book what should i read next sarah if someone said i really liked fledgling what should i read next what would you tell them okay this was hard yeah i'm gonna be honest i feel like i chose an easy yep an easy answer um i think that octavia butler left a hole in the literary world when she passed away um and i think that um nk jemison has kind of picked that up in a lot of ways like has filled in a lot of those spots not just because they're both black women, but the fact that they are both black women lends their voices specifically to a genre of book, um, especially in the sci-fi fantasy world. Um, and N.K. Jemison, I think, comments on these the same issues as Octavia Butler in like a similar beautiful way. But I think N.K. Jemison is a little less bing, I'm going to be honest with you. 
So I just came off of reading The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin right before I started reading Fledgling, which was fascinating in combination because The City We Became by N.K. Jemisin has a lot of themes from Lovecraft and then Fledgling has a lot of themes about like vampire lore, vampire history, um, but kind of adding this extra spin on it and like taking it and changing it into something else. So um, that has specifically to do with like race and identity. Um, and so the city we became has themes of like collectivism um, and racism and rejecting community norms that I think are very present also in fledgling. It's much more speculative, <laughs> much fewer vampires in it, aka no vampires, but it has a similar pacing where it's like, I felt like fledgling was like a little slow. The city we became was also slow, but at the end of it, I felt like it was worth it. Yes. So that was my first one. Teddy, what do you got? <laughs> <sighs> I hate when I log into the doc and Sarah has had the same idea as me. It's very annoying. <laughs> um, my answer, I frequently call N.K. Jemison our generation's Octavia Butler. Again, not just because they're both like Afrofuturist Black women authors, but because N.K. Jemison is a similarly guiding light for the genre and does this really beautiful blend of science fiction and fantasy that I think everyone should really get into. And I would say try the Broken Earth trilogy from N.K. Jemisin. Um, it is not grounded in the real world in the way that Fledgling is. Um, and it's a little bit more, I mean, it's still that fantasy sci-fi blend. I would say that the Broken Earth trilogy is more of a high fantasy sci-fi blend rather than like a vampire fantasy sci-fi blend. Um, but it is still about um, the other, like all caps, and their relationship to humanity and their relationships to one another. Um, it is just as smart. It is just as heartrending. It attacks morally questionable. Uh, it, it, it asks moral questions in a way that is like just as fabulous um and then i will also say my second one is also a cop-out uh, <laughs> because i'm just gonna tell you to read more octavia butler i really think that if you liked fledgling you should give her short stories a try they're um collected under the name bloodchild if you can get the annotated version bloodchild and other stories is a really, really fabulous way to get to know Octavia Butler as an author. And it's bite-sized, so you can, like, let it hit you full force, put it down, and then come back. I love Broken Earth Trilogy. Mm. Ugh. So it's good. So <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's deeply fabulous. In two weeks, we are going to be reading A Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula K. Le Guin, wow. the first book in, in her Earthsea series. I am very excited please join us in two weeks and then you can follow us on social media at at shelving cart on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Tumblr, and TikTok. And our email is shelvingcart at gmail.com. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. One, two, three, four. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. With Sarah and Teddy. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Shelving cart. Teddy, hey! Thank you for listening to Shelving Cart. Shelving Cart was created, written, and recorded by Sarah and Teddy, edited by Sarah, and the theme music is by Kate Gardine. 
If you enjoyed listening to our podcast, please rate and review us on any of your podcast listening apps. We greatly appreciate it.